The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by TechTown Detroit, Detroit's entrepreneurship hub. TechTown Detroit is a business incubator and accelerator, helping tech startups and local businesses launch and grow. TechTown supports businesses with co-working and office space, meeting space, and event space. They also connect entrepreneurs to resources and learning and networking events in Detroit. Join TechTown Detroit Thursday, October 10th for their annual fundraiser, Toast of the Town, a benefit celebrating Detroit's entrepreneurial spirit, which includes the fourth annual Salute Awards. Tickets available at techtowndetroit.org toast. TechTown Detroit, a 501c3 nonprofit helping Detroit startups and businesses start, stabilize, and scale. Hey everybody, happy Wednesday. Welcome to the Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. So glad to have you with me today. And one of the great things about having your own show like this is that I get to pick the topics. I get to pick the people that I want to talk to. And sometimes on the program, I don't necessarily have to do something that is news-related. Sometimes I just get to talk to people who are doing really, really interesting things. And I'm very excited today to have on my program Kettering University's president and physics professor, Dr. Robert McMahon. I met him up on Mackinac last year. He's just an interesting guy. So stay tuned for a conversation about science and art, the intersection of those things, and a lot more. It's just a fun conversation that I think you're going to enjoy on The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit. The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Mad Dog Professional Services. Mad Dog Professional Services focuses on putting their clients on the leading edge of technology faster than thought possible to capture new revenue streams. That's Mad Dog Professional Services. Hey, thanks for checking out the show today. As I mentioned in the intro, sometimes I get an opportunity just to talk to interesting people because I want to do so. So when the opportunity to speak to Dr. McMahon came up, I thought it was a good one. Dr. Robert McMahon, of course, is the president at Kettering University. He is also a tenured physics professor, an expert in astrophysics. He is also an entrepreneur and has been involved in some incredibly important scientific discoveries over the course of his career. Of course, I did have a news reason for doing this. Kettering is getting ready to celebrate their 100th anniversary. They've got a big gala planned for next week. Uh, but this is an important university in our ecosystem here in the state of Michigan, producing a ton of engineers for the automotive industry. Kettering, of course, was originally known as the General Motors Institute. They changed their name several years ago. But Dr. McMahon has been the president there since 2011. And I first met him up on Mackinac Island this past spring when we were at the Mackinac Policy Conference. And we had a fascinating conversation up there. I thought I'd invite him back to talk a little bit more about his astrophysics work. Dr. McMahon is with me today. Welcome, sir. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, we first met on Mackinac Island last year, and we yeah. talked a lot about Kettering, uh, Kettering University, and the fact that it's the 100th anniversary coming up. Uh, next week, big, in fact. Big gala plan for next week. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I do want to give you an opportunity to talk a bit about Kettering and their contribution. I, I didn't realize uh, that there are more patent holders from Kettering than just about any other university. Yeah, no, it's interesting that I think it was the Economist uh, did a study last uh, last year of the, and they looked at universities across the country in terms of the inventiveness, creativity, and and the number of patents generated by their alumni. Instead of you know, they always look at the university itself, but mm-hmm. they took a different tack this time. They said, you know, what do these universities produce? You know, what what are the outcomes uh, in terms of the people that graduate from them? And I got a call from the. Reporter, it was a, a kind of neat. Who's who's the lead reporter on the story? He said, "You know, I understand why MIT is on the top of the list, and I understand why 
you know, Caltech is at the top of the list, but Kettering University, you know, higher than Stanford, higher than Harvard, higher than Yale or Penn or Duke or any of these institutions. He said, what is, what's in the water, so to speak, in, in Flint and, uh, and uh, at Kettering that makes it, that makes this happen? And well, uh, you know, water is probably a bad analogy to yeah. use for that particular. <laughs> I was let that one go. Yeah, no, but it was probably a bad analogy to use. But that's but uh, but I let it go too, and we and we went into a conversation from there. And I said, no, it's it's incredible. In fact, I was we were that evening we hosted a after I got the news uh, that evening we hosted an event at the DAC here in Detroit for the SAE World Congress where we had. Our, all of our alumni come in uh, who were at the Congress, and you know, and, and it's really the SAE World Congress is a, is a who's who of Kettering alums at some at some level. And I was sitting at a table with a group of alums, and they and I and I mentioned this, and they said, I said, well, how many pads do you have? And the guy next to me said, he's an alum. He said, I have twenty four. And the guy next to him said, well, I got you beat. I got thirty six. <laughs> the guy next to him, and we went around the table, and there wasn't a single alum at the table who had under 20 patents to his name. I think the, probably at the table represented, we were close to 200 and something patents in this one small group randomly selected of alumni. And it really goes to kind of validate the underlying argument that the article was making. It's one of the, it creates some of the most inventive, creative, innovative people in the country. Well, you know, it, it seems a, a natural fit for you, given your background. I mean, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that, because obviously astrophysics is is your area of, of uh, specialty, I should, I guess. But uh, but you're also an entrepreneur. Yes. Uh, you've started a number of businesses, yes. some very successful ones, including yes. working with the government. I mean, it seems like this is a natural fit. You've got the administrative experience for this by running companies. Um, also, you've been in government. Uh, you've done all kinds of different things. Was Kettering something that was on your radar? Well, I knew I knew of Kettering and GMI. You yeah. know, we, we were both we go by both names, so to speak. But uh, but I knew uh, very uh, I very was very aware of the institution and its his, and its reputation for excellence sure. and the people it produces. Um, you know, the university president is an interesting role because it really kind of a it's kind of the uh, aggregation of uh, of a lot of different experiences and skills, and that, and so I don't. There's only one person I've ever known in my professional career that started out wanting to become a university president. Most other university presidents kind of evolved into that position <laughs> over the course of a career, and and I have to say probably that was my my trajectory. Although I will say I've always been involved. I've always been a faculty member at universities. I've always had a passion for education and always, I think, of all the things that I've done in my career, teaching students and and interacting with students is probably the thing which, quite frankly, I get the most joy out of is doing that, is having that experience and working with students. There's something about you know, working on something very complicated, you know, I'm in physics, so, you know, a lot of complex ideas and theories, and sitting there and finally, and seeing the light go off and seeing people connect the dots and put it together is always very, very exciting. Well, you know, I I like, I like hearing that because, you know, I'm a big proponent of learning for learning's sake, right? It doesn't matter what you major in necessarily. I love the fact that you went to Duke, you have a you have degrees in physics and in art history. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people would sit there and say, Why? You know, the art history thing, it's wonderful to study, but 
we seem to be so focused on practical applications for our studies as opposed to just the joy of learning. Um, how do we sort of turn that conversation around and get people to realize that any type of education, regardless of what it's in, is something that's going to have value for people? Yeah, I think I think we tend to I think we tend to um, we tend to create these binary choices uh, a lot in our in our in our culture where it's either this or that you can either be a STEM or this or an art or live in the liberal arts. Uh, but when we look at our own individual experience, very often all the things that make us who we are, are kind of the accumulation of experiences in all of these worlds. And for me, I, 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 I love physics. I love the sciences and engineering, but I also gained an enormous amount of insight in studying the history of art, and in from the perspective that the um, you know the the people I studied under in that in that discipline gave me. In fact, if you go back and you look at my PhD thesis and you know this esoteric physics and well all these equations, it's actually dedicated to my art history uh, advisor because she was uh, one of the most influential people in my life in terms of how formulating how I approached problems and how I ended up you know, how I ended up uh, developing. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in what sort of connections you saw between your scientific work and, and, and the world of art. I mean, frankly, if you some, think of somebody like da Vinci, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, you see that, you see that intermingling of, of the two all the time. Does one help inform the other? It absolutely does. And in fact, the, the, the nature of the, the, the nature of the, how the, how people in those different disciplines go about solving problems and thinking about problems is actually very similar uh, in a lot of ways. There's a lot of uh, commonality of approach. I always remember as an undergraduate, I used to have go into art history classes, and I'd be in a class, and, and a professor would say, well, what does the physicist think about this? And I would say, well, does the physicist think any different than the art historians think about this? I don't think so. I mean, we, we really were approaching the problem. It's, you know, the art, art historians would not call it the scientific method, but in fact, they use often uh, something akin to the scientific method in dealing with the uh, with uh, with the provenance and discovering the the underlying foundation for a piece of piece of art and and uh, or a work or a school, it's it's actually a very similar kind of a a thought process, a, a investigative you know uh, way, and and it was always very thrilling to me. I I can't draw. I have no artistic <laughs> talent whatsoever. I mean, my artistic talent ends begins and ends with stick stick people, um, but I have a great great admiration for those who visualize the can visualize the world and and interpret it through art and it is uh, it was always fascinating to me well you know you talk about visualizing something you're one of the people that helped us visualize the galaxy the universe um in in finding ways to measure it one i mean yeah. that's something that i i I read some of your stuff. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? But it still fascinates me. Uh, the Great Wall. Mm -hmm. so this is something you worked on. Absolutely. Figure yeah. out. Um, yeah, when I was at Harvard. Explaining this to somebody in layman's terms, what is the Great Wall? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, you have to go back a little bit before you get to the Great Wall. It's, the Great Wall is in China, but it's also in the sky. And um, interestingly, 
this has been the past few decades have been an absolute renaissance in, ast- in astronomy and astrophysics. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been kind of this convergence of technology that enables us to to see and to detect um, signals from distant uh, distant um, phenomena. And then, and then there's been the advent of the computer revolution. All of these things have all played into the space, uh, space capability and orbit, and and all these things all play into this and have created this incredible kind of convergence of of capabilities that have have uh, astrophysics has has advanced leaps and bounds um, over the past few decades. In fact, the most recent Nobel Prize in physics was awarded to. Uh, a group of three physicists, two uh, from Europe, one from the United States. Uh, the one from the United States is Jim Peebles, who was at Princeton and was actually, I have a, a lineage too through my, uh, through my scientific advisors and mentors, and, and, uh, and he's a cosmologist and studied phenomena just like this one. But that doesn't answer your question, does it? I mean, there's <laughs> a, it's, it's, suffice it to say, one of the most, if you'll you know, my you you're at risk here because my students ask me these questions, and you know, two and a half hours later, I'm finishing my answer. So I'll try. I, to I have all the time in the world. <laughs> sir. But one of the one of the most one of the fascinating things about astronomy and astrophysics is is we are actually divining the workings, the inner workings, and the um, mechanisms of action and uh, and the, and the nature of phenomena at distances that are absolutely incomprehensibly large, right? The the light traveling at 186,000 miles a second. You know, light can go around the Earth's equator seven times in a second. The light has been traveling for billions of years at that speed to reach us from these things. So th- these distances are absolutely incomprehensibly large, but yet... From the Earth here, from our, from our, you know, from our lonely perch here, we're able to detect it, understand it, measure it, characterize it, create theories to ex- describe it, all of those things, in ways that are uh, that that act, that do that actually reproduce what we see and explain. It's an incredible. Incredible technology, incredible science that has been developed over literally millennia. It's really over millennia, over thousands of years we've developed, you know, going back to people like Leonardo and Galileo and Kepler and working from there forward in time, each adding a little bit to the to the answer that has enabled us to kind of develop a ladder of technologies and science and enable us to determine these things at great distance. And so one of the things that I was involved in earlier in my career was we were looking at the, the, what's known as cosmology, which is the structure and evolution of the universe at the very largest scales. And uh, I was very privileged to be um, a part of a research group at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge that did a lot of the fundamental work on dark matter and dark energy, a lot of the original observational and characterization work. And it was a very heady time at that period because we were, we were getting first glimpses of what, how the universe was actually organized on the largest scales. And it... F- 
it was not at all what we expected. Sure. You know, it was one of those things when the prints would come off the laser printer, and laser printers were really sophisticated devices back then. You no, know, when the when the prints were coming off the laser printer, we were looking at them and saying, "This has got to be wrong. This cannot be what it's actually, what the structures actually look like. This doesn't make any sense." Well, it turns out actually that was what the structures look like that we didn't understand what was what was actually driving the large-scale structure of the universe. And unpacking that story has been one of the great revolutions in physics over the past 20, 30 years. The Great Wall being one of these structures we saw. The Great Wall is a structure of galaxies and galaxy clusters. It's the largest coherent structure in the universe. And when you look at and it's not just like from here to Peoria. It's, it's hundreds of millions of light years across containing trillions upon trillions of stars organized in hundreds of millions of galaxies. It's just an incredible, um, incredible thing to, to, to see. You know, for, but for each major discovery you make, it seems to me that there's just a new mystery to solve uh at what point do you come to grips with that look we can advance a lot and we can learn a lot but there's still so much more that we will never figure out oh well there's you know it's that's the wonderful thing about science right that that's that's why you do science is you know when we're when we're kids our parents tell us something like it's not a it's a journey it's not a destination, you know, usually talking about life or some, sure. some, uh, you know, espousing some wisdom. But, but science is like that. It's a journey. We all have a role to play. We all contribute, hopefully, if we're, if we're lucky, we contribute something to the body of knowledge. And uh, as, as Newton said, you know, if I've, if I've seen further than others, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. You never know what, how the, the dots get connected. You can only connect the dots in reverse. And so as we go forward, we, we solve one problem. It asks a few more. So you, you answer those questions. They lead to other questions. And in that process, we, we gather a body of knowledge and understanding that eventually comes together to, to, to create real insight. And that's one of the wonderful things about the astronomy and astrophysics in this way is we're all astronomers at some fundamental level who hasn't walked out on a dark night looked up at the night sky with absolute awe and wonder and say what what is this that i'm looking at the that that very instinct was really i think the the beginning of astronomy in humankind it was probably astronomy is probably one of the first sciences you know, people wondered why the rocks rolled down the hill. And then they also, when the, sky, when the sun went down, one, they wondered where the sun went. And then two, they wondered what these things were that showed up at night. And explaining all that has been one of the great intellectual pursuits of mankind over the ages. And it really speaks to astronomy and astrophysics. It's a, it's a, there's a certain romanticism to it. Uh, because of that, I think it's uh, it's a discipline that tries to answer some really fundamental questions about where where are we, who are we, and where are we in the universe, and what does it what does it all mean? 
I should remind folks, my guest is Dr. Robert McMahon. He's a professor of physics and the president at Kettering University. I love the fact that you're still doing both, and clearly I, I can hear your enthusiasm here uh, for the subject matter. But, you know, one of the things that science has done, though, it's, it's constantly challenging what we think we know mm-hmm. about the world, what we think we know about our origins, everything else. And there's always been pushback anytime significant advancements are being made in, in just about any scientific field, whether it's religious objections, whether it is uh, people denying science, uh, even though they can see what's mm-hmm. going on. Are we getting to a point where that is starting to lessen? You're not getting this severe. I mean, obviously, nobody's getting, you know, uh, nobody's getting burned at the stake for suggesting that in the macro sense exactly but yeah uh, but is there still that opposition that's out there that you see i I think that i think that we're not always doing as as we're not always doing as good a job um as we could in how in in educating students about the nature and the pursuit of science unfortunately science often gets convolved with and convoluted with other things and, 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 and it can appear to be in that combination. It can appear to be subjective. Uh, and that's not what science is about. Science is not, the, the, the practice of science is not a subject, it's not a subjective art. It's an objective science. It's an objective art. And it really is, uh, you know, I, I face this with talking about astronomy and astrophysics and the large-scale structure of the universe. I, you know, people come to me and they have various philosophical objections. They might be, you know, faith-based. They might be culturally-based. They might be something else. And I say, you know, that's really a different question if you want to think about it. Because what we're talking about is the universe as it is, as we understand it and as we detect it. The questions that you're that you're speaking of are, are surround that, right? That's that's more of the subjective and the interpretive. Sure. But the science piece is about the data. What do the data tell us? What are the and 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 what do we understand? And as importantly, what don't we understand? Um, I you know I get I I you know uh, science is always incremental it is always evolutionary it is never fixed it is never you know it's never we conclude this and we don't need to think about it anymore it is a it is always open to further illumination and interpretation and further experiment um i do a lot of this in i do a lot of this in in class i'll say okay what is the difference between science and something else Science is when you have a set of data, you, con- you have a hypothesis, you have an idea, this, this, this works this way. And then you go out and you test the hypothesis and you collect data. Okay, at that point you're faced with a choice. If the data, if the experiments that you do and the data that you collect uh, contradict the hypothesis, you have to throw the hypothesis away. You can't say, okay, I'm just going to take the part of the data that that support my conclusion and discard the rest. That does happen a lot, though. It happens a lot, but that's where that's where it's no longer science, right? Yeah. It's evolved at that point into something else. It, in fact, if you go back historically, this was this was one of Galileo's great great insights. Galileo was really should be considered in a lot of ways the the father of uh, experimental science because he he was the first one 
And then think about all the religious context around which in the, in the Renaissance, in the Middle Ages, uh, th- these things were happening. Uh, he was the first one to say, okay, I'm going to do, I, c- I can understand this by doing experiments. And then if, if what I think how it works doesn't jibe with the experiments, I'm going to throw out what I think, not the experiment. That, that choice, that selection, is really critical to science, and it's really where it breaks down. I always ask people— Well, it should be critical in a lot of different areas. Yes, I mean, you know, yeah. if you think about politics and everything else, uh, you know, just because your worldview is challenged doesn't mean that you can't change your worldview. That's right. <laughs> if, you, if you have a—if you, you know, if the evidence takes you somewhere, follow the chain of evidence. Now, that's not to say that anything is ever— permanently settled either right it because there's all there was a time in in our history when everyone was convinced the earth was flat beyond a beyond any in you know it was it was incontrovertibly true that 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 was true or there are always periods where the where it seems like we really understand for example a, a, a distinctly non-political kind of esoteric example. Newton came along and invented mechanics in physics, uh, the basic understanding of why does the ball roll across the table? And if you draw up a bowling ball on your foot, why does it fall on your foot? You know, all of these kind of basic behaviors. That, that stood for four, five hundred years as the absolute, this is how it works. And then this guy, this German patent clerk, came along and said, you know, that doesn't actually work in all cases. <laughs> there are these cases where that doesn't fit the data. It doesn't. In fact, in fact, he was even more inspired because he didn't even have really data. He was thinking about cases and what if and what if this and what about that. And those thoughts, that that understanding of the of that inconsistency led to an entire revolution in physics and an entire reconstruction of how we understand the world and the universe to work. Um, Fifty years before him, people would say, okay, yep, nope, this, we got it. This is fixed. We, we don't need to work on it. He comes along, all of a sudden, it's all new. That's the wonderful thing about science. You really never really know the true answer. It's a, a mathematician would say it's an asymptote. You always get closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to the truth, but you never really get there because you never have a complete view of everything. I, I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier uh, when we were talking, when you mentioned that, you know, we don't always do a good job of explaining what it is and why these discoveries matter. But I, I want to ask you about uh, having like celebrity physicists like Neil deGrasse Tyson mm-hmm. out there becoming a celebrity, sort of revising the, the Carl Sagan role, redoing the cosmos. Uh, billions that, and billions. It's got, got a ton of attention, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, updated a lot of the information about what we do know about the universe, uh, and how helpful is something like that? And do you get excited when you see people paying attention to these sorts of things? I always, I, I always, I, I think, I think popularizing science and, and having a voice, that's where Sagan was very, very good. He was able to take a very complex ideas in science and and kind of uh, distill them to their core ideas and communicate them effectively um, there's an there's an old adage in 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 you know in teaching you don't really learn something until you teach it 
Yeah. And you don't really learn something. You don't really understand something until you have to explain it to someone who is not really well-versed in the, in the science. And so people who popularize science, like, like, the, like the, those folks like Neil deGrasse Tyson and others, I, I think they, they serve a very important role in our, in our um, uh, you know, in the discourse. I, I, the, only, the only issue I take with them is when they kind of, uh, to, to the point where they start to blur the boundaries of science versus opinion or versus other things and use the credibility they have on the science side to to argue the you know these other points i think that 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 helps to create this perception sometimes that it's a subjective discipline in that way I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, absolutely. Well, we've got to wrap it up here in just a little bit, but I, I do want to ask you. You, you mentioned, mentioned STEM education mm-hmm. uh, not too long ago. We have seen a, a renewed emphasis, uh, especially in getting young women uh, mm-hmm. interested in science. Uh, are you starting to notice uh, an uptick in the pipeline of students, uh, potential students for places like Kettering, uh, as a result of, of this push recently? Uh, yes, I mean we've been working very hard at, at this for a long time, uh, but I, I think one of the things that and we and we have a number of programs at the university that are targeted specifically at under traditionally underserved populations in the STEM pipeline, like students of color, students from disadvantaged, you know disadvantaged backgrounds, or or women, or or other or other um, populations of students that have not that don't have participation in the same rights. Um, I think the important thing for us is, and and many of these programs have been. We have one program called Lights, which is directed specifically at young women, which people come from all over, literally all over the United States and in other countries, other kind of Europe and some other places, to this program specifically because of what, how it catalyzes young women at a very important part of their education to pursue uh, careers in sciences. It's, uh, it's actually won a, a number of national awards for this. The the uh, the important thing that we have to realize is is I think and and our programs t- do do are built around this, not just in this area but in things like first robotics. We have the first first robotics center in the country associated with the university. All of our programs share one common theme, and that is this understanding that the pipeline doesn't get narrow or doesn't thin out in the second half of 12th grade, yeah. right? I always say you can't recruit students who aren't there. In order to fill the pipeline, you have to fill it at the start of the pipeline, not lament the end of the pipeline. And so in order to actually have an impact on those populations of students, you actually have to work early in their education. You have to be in sixth grade and eighth grade and seventh grade. You have to be early. And it's it's intrinsic to the sciences and engineering because if you're if your interest is in literature or in art history, for example, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it, probably there's people out there who make an opposite argument, but <laughs> fundamentally, if you take a course in Renaissance architecture or a course in you know, medieval painting, the order in which you take those courses is probably not, you know, doesn't impact your ability significantly. 
However, a lot of the fun foundational disciplines for STEM and for sciences are 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 incremental and they are sequential. So, you know, you can't take precalculus until you've had algebra two. You can't take algebra two until you've had algebra one and trig, and you can't have algebra one and trig until you've had pre-algebra. You know, and so you work back the pipeline. So the decision to enter the pipe to take that math course in sixth or seventh grade is actually much more fundamental than it seems at the time because if a student doesn't engage, then they remove from their from as an option all of the things that come after. Mm-hmm. And so, in order to make sure that that young woman or that uh, uh, you know the, the student is is graduating in twelfth grade, having had pre-calculus, algebra two, and all the sciences and everything else, you have to start in sixth grade, and you have to say no. Yes, this is hard. Let's show you how this is done. Let's inspire you to, to, to stick. Let's inspire you to find, to be excited and show you what, what is to come from this. And through that process, build the pipeline. So as the, as the more that we focus on those early grades in our interaction, and, and we do a lot of this as an institution, and keep in mind, we're a private university. We're not a public university. Mm-hmm. You expect public universities to do this, but private universities typically are not don't engage. We we feel a very strong need and a very strong obligation to do this and do a lot of this work across Michigan and across the country. We know that you have to work very early if you're going to have an impact, and we we see that we it takes time for the students to work their way through, right? But we see that happening in increasing numbers. And uh, the young women that are coming to our university are absolutely um, phenomenal, phenomenal Well, we will end on that note, Dr. McMahon. Thank you very much for your time today. It's always a pleasure. Oh, it's been fun. And congratulations on the 100th anniversary of Kettering. I know you've got a big big thing planned next week. I wish I could be there, but uh, alas, I cannot. But uh, looking just uh, pretty excited about the next 100 years over there. We, uh, We as well. Thank you for having me. Dr. Robert McMahon is the seventh president at Kettering University, also a tenured professor in physics there, and uh, has been my guest on the program today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. That's going to wrap up the show for today. Tomorrow, got an interesting discussion about health care and a new model of health care that has come to Detroit. We'll talk a little bit about that with Dr. Paul Thomas from Plum Health. Really cool concept that he's got that I think a lot of people might be interested to hear. So that's going to be tomorrow's show. Then on Friday, don't forget, we do the week that was. Also, coming up next week, a couple of things that are going to be neat. I'm going to be talking to a man named Pete Ripmaster. He is an ultra marathoner. He also has won the Iditarod race, not the sled race, the Iditarod jogging race. thousand miles in the winter in Alaska. It's incredibly dangerous stuff. He won it. He's somebody who is, uh, grew up in this area and uh, somebody I know. And so I've been looking forward to having this conversation with him for a long time. So that's going to be next week. Looking forward to that. We'll get an update on what's happening in Hong Kong next week as well. And obviously, as news breaks, we will follow that stuff too. Thanks for listening. Send me an email, thecraigfollyshow at gmail.com. It's easy to find me. You can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, all that stuff. Reach out. Let me know what you think. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. 
The Craig Folly Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Samaritas, the state's largest private foster care and adoption agency. However, Samaritas also provides a number of other services around the state. They are one of the largest refugee resettlement agencies in Michigan. They serve homeless families, persons with disabilities, abused and trafficked women. They also provide market rate and affordable housing for seniors and HUD housing for families and also have skilled nursing, memory care and rehab communities in Grand Rapids, Cadillac and Saginaw. Samaritas, we thank them for their support here at Deadline Detroit.